So every year, the Gallup organization conducts a poll uh, to determine what we as Americans think about the ethical standards of various professions that are out there. And every year for the past 15 years, nurses have ended up on top. Any nurses here? Congratulations if you are. 84% of Americans believe that nurses have either high or very high ethical standards. And nurses are followed uh, fairly closely by pharmacists, by medical doctors, by engineers, by dentists, and by police officers. All of those different professions ended up with more than 50% of Americans ranking them as being ethically either high or very high. All of the other professions ended up below 50%. And at the bottom, we had advertising practitioners, insurance salespeople, car salespeople, and at the very bottom, members of Congress. There you go, okay? No political statement being made. Now, unfortunately, clergy fell below the 50% mark. We were at 44%. And my question is, why didn't at least 6% more of you vote for us in that in that survey. I don't know. Anyway, this morning we're going to be looking at uh, the story of a person in the Bible whose profession would never come close to even making the bottom of the Gallup poll list of respected professions because this person's profession was so inappropriate that if Gallup put it on their list, people would no longer respect the list to begin with. And I want to set the scene in case you're not familiar with some of the history of the, uh, of the Old Testament. So in the year 1440 BC, God used a man named Moses to lead the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And then they crossed over the Red Sea and they worked their way over several months through the wilderness, through the desert, and they arrived at the border of the land of Canaan, which God had promised to give to them as the land that they were gonna inherit where they were gonna be able to set up their own nation. So they're there on the border and Moses sends out 12 spies to check out the land of Canaan. It says, go and spy out the land, see what it's like and report back to us. And these 12 spies come back and they say, this is an amazing land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's got grapes that are huge. The fruit is incredible. The land is unbelievably fertile. It would be a wonderful place for us to live. But there's a little problem. Actually, it's a big problem. There's giants in the land and these people are, there's, there's just no way that we could take over the land because they're too strong for us. Or at least that's what 10 of the 12 spies said. Two of them, named Joshua and Caleb, and, and incidentally, if you know Julie Rogers, her, uh, our singer up here, her sons are named Joshua and Caleb. Perfect name for her boys. Joshua and Caleb said, no, yeah, the giants are big, but our God is bigger. We can take the land because our God is so much bigger than they are. But the 10 spies who didn't have faith in God prevailed. And so the people said, no, we're afraid. We don't want to do this. We don't trust that God can, can lead us into the land. And so God says, fine, you want to stay in the wilderness? You can stay in the wilderness, but what's going to happen is you're going to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years until all of the adults die off. All of the people who do not trust me are going to die off. And your children who you were afraid that they would be, you know, eaten or whatever by the giants, your children are gonna inherit the land. And that's exactly what happened. They wandered around the land of uh, the, the wilderness, the desert for about 40 years. And at the end of that time, only two of the adults remained, Joshua and Caleb. 
And so here they are. We're going to pick up the story with them on the edge of the promised land, on the edge of the land of Canaan with a second chance to go into it. Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, who's now the leader of the Israelites, Joshua secretly sent two spies from Shittim, and he said, go look over the land, especially Jericho. So they went and they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Question number one. What are two good Jewish boys doing in the house of a Canaanite prostitute, right? I mean, that's the, you see that and you, you ask that question. Now, some people respond and say, well, if you really knew the original ancient Hebrew and Greek, you'd know that the word means innkeeper. No, it doesn't. The word <laughs> means prostitute. And if you wanna know what the word is afterwards, ask me and I will tell you that. The word is not innkeeper. The Bible deals with messy people. It doesn't whitewash our faults and our sins and, and our shortcomings. And this is who Rahab was. Not everybody has the ethical standards of a nurse, and Rahab didn't. Okay, that's who she is. And here's the thing about this. When we ask the question, what are two good boy, Jewish boys doing in the house of a Canaanite prostitute? That's exactly the point. Nobody is going to expect to find them hiding out there. And so that's probably why they ended up going there. Unfortunately for them, the king found out, the king of Jericho found out. Verse two, the king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and who entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, yes, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they had come from. And at dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone, the gate was shut. Think about this from Rahab's perspective. She could have been a national hero. All she had to do was say, the guys are hiding out upstairs on my roof. Go up and, and catch them. They would have held like a parade in her honor. She would have had, you know, she could have quit her job and she could have just done, you know, whatever she wanted to do because she would have been the national hero of the Canaanites if all she had done was betray the Jewish spies. So why? Why in the world would Rahab risk her life? Because you know what, if they find out that she's harboring the enemy, she's dead. So she goes from a parade to risking her life. Why in the world would Rahab do something like that? Just keep reading. Verse eight, before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and she said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and to Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. 
Everybody in Jericho had heard of the Lord's power. They had all heard about what God had done in bringing them out of Egypt. And when they crossed the Red Sea, how he drowned the Egyptians to protect his people. And how when they ran into these two incredibly powerful armies, they were able to completely destroy those armies. Everybody knew about the power of the God of Israel. And everybody in Jericho was paralyzed with fear except for Rahab. Rahab knew that the Lord, that Jehovah, that Yahweh was the one true God. She knew that the God of Israel was the maker of heaven and earth and was more powerful than all of the gods of the Canaanites, more powerful than the giants, more powerful than all of the armies. And instead of responding with fear, Rahab responds in faith. And that's why she was willing to risk her life and hide the spies. She said, I'm going to align myself with God and with his people rather than my people. Verse 12, now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. I'm going to trust you Actually, I'm going to trust your God. And I'm going to trust that if I don't betray you, you won't betray me. And that's what Rahab decided to do. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. And she said to them, Go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return and then go on your way. Her house happens to be in the city wall. She just happens to have a rope so that people could maybe climb down when they needed to. Obviously not for fire, it's stones, you know, so things aren't going to burn there. So she's got this rope. The guys climb down the rope. They go on their way and they're protected. Jump down to verse 22. When they left, they went into the hills. They stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. And then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, came to Joshua, the son of Nun, told him everything that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. Think of the irony of this situation. Forty years ago, the Israelites are poised on the edge of the land of Canaan, and they say, no way. They're too big. They're too strong. They're too powerful. The Israelites are melting in fear because of the Canaanites. Forty years later, the Canaanites are melting in fear because of the Israelites and because of their God. And the Israelites know this because Rahab has given them the information that they need. You're the captain of an army, and you hear from somebody in their country that they're afraid of you. That's exactly what you need to know because if they're demoralized, if they're afraid, they're not going to put up much of a fight and it's going to give you greater courage to go in and attack them. Rahab gave them the strategic information that they needed so that they could go with confidence 
and capture the city of Jericho. And that's what happened just over a week later. How many of you know the song, Joshua Fought the Battle of Jericho? I'll sing it. Would you like me to sing it for you? No, we, we won't do that this morning. If you're not familiar with the story, what ended up happening then is just a little over a week later, about a week later or so, uh, the Israelites marched around the city of Jericho one time each day, essentially saying, we're taking this city. And they do it day after day after day for six days. And they're not saying anything this whole time. It's just like in silence, the trumpets are blowing, I think, but, but they're not talking at all. They're marching around the city and the, the people of Jericho are getting more and more and more afraid. And then on the seventh day, they march around the city seven times. And at the end of the seventh time, they all shout, the walls come a tumbling down. Joshua fought the battle of you know, Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. And they come tumbling down. The people rush in, they take over the city, they capture it. And this is their first conquest as they move into the land of Canaan. But what happens to Rahab in this situation? Jump over to Joshua chapter six, verse 25, and we find out there that Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men that Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. That's so cool. Joshua keeps his promise. He keeps the promise that the spies had, had made to Rahab, and he spares her and his family and her family. But the story doesn't end there. That last phrase, she lives among the Israelites to this day. God didn't just spare Rahab. He said, you're going to be part of my family. You're going to be part of the nation of Israel. You know, Rahab's job Rahab's profession will never show up on Gallup's list of ethical professions. But it does show up, interestingly, on another list in the Bible that was written about 1,500 years or so later. Look at this verse. I want to take a look at a verse from one of the genealogies in the New Testament. I'm kind of jumping in in the middle of this genealogy. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David, who was the greatest king in the entire history of the nation of Israel. What in the world is Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, doing as the great, great grandmother of Israel's King David. Why? Why would God include Rahab in this genealogy of David? I wouldn't if I had been God, but that's part of the reason why I'm not God, because God is so much, so much his ways, his thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts, but there's more to it than that. If you go to the end of the genealogy, it ends this way. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. This means that Rahab is a direct ancestor of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. A Canaanite prostitute is in the family tree of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. Why in the world would God not only allow her to be in Jesus' ancestry, but why would he also advertise it? You know, 
we, we hide our crazy uncles. We put them up in the attic so that nobody knows that they're there. Or if you go on Ancestry.com and you're filling things out and you find out that you've got a relative who was you know, kind of less than you know, whatever it would be that you, you're, you're embarrassed by them, you're going to let them stay in the genealogy, but you're not going to go into work the next day. Hey, guess what? One of my relatives was a, you know, was a drug dealer. Isn't that exciting? You're just not going to do those sorts of things. But God not only does that, he advertises it, and he puts Rahab right smack in the middle of Jesus' family tree. And if you're not familiar with Jewish genealogies, you realize that this is even more unusual than we could ever imagine it would be for, for several reasons. First of all, Rahab's a woman. And in those days, women were not typically found in Jewish genealogies. They, you would just put the husband, you wouldn't necessarily put the wife. Now, in this particular verse that we looked at earlier, there were three women that were listed. There's actually five women listed in the entire genealogy of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. Luke doesn't list any of them, but Matthew lists five of them. And each of those five women have an incredible story of how God worked in their lives and through their lives. And so God must have intentionally wanted to have them in Jesus' genealogy. Second issue for Rahab is that she's not Jewish. She's a Canaanite. You're not going to put a foreigner in the listing of the Jewish Messiah because in some sense that's going to make him look like he's tainted. And yet God chose to do that as well. And then obviously her profession is going to be an issue. You don't want to have somebody like that in the genealogy of, of uh, uh, the Savior of the world. And you put all those things together and you're just like, why in the world would God include her in his family tree? And add to that, the Jewish genealogies are selective. They don't include every particular, every single person that would be in there. In fact, earlier when I mentioned that Rahab was the great, great grandmother of David, probably not. There are probably some gaps in there. And so there's probably several generations in between Rahab and, and, and uh, David because Jewish genealogies didn't necessarily cover every single person. They're usually written in order to make a point and to remind people of certain things. And one of the things that God wanted to remind his people of is that Rahab was part of Jesus' genealogy. So Matthew included Rahab in there intentionally, and he knew full well that the people who were reading what he wrote would recognize that she was in there. So the question is why? Why would he do that? And I think the answer gets at the heart of Christianity. It gets at the core of what it means to be part of Jesus' family, to be his child, to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, at first glance, it seems like the reason that God included her in the genealogy was because she hid the spies. Verse 26 of Joshua 6, Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. So yes, Joshua spared her life because she had hidden the spies, but that doesn't really explain why she's in the genealogy. If you jump over to the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, there's a list of people in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11 who are men and women of faith. And Rahab appears on that list along with people like Noah 
and Abraham and Moses and Isaiah and others who are clearly people who are respected and who are men and women of faith. Hebrews 11:31. by faith, the prostitute Rahab, notice he doesn't hide her profession. The prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed by those who were disobedient. So the author's pointing out that her actions were a result of her faith. She trusted in the God of Israel, and so she hid the spies, and that's why I, the author of the book of Hebrews, am putting her on my list of people of faith, because she was one who had faith in the God of Israel. And I think that's at least part of the reason why God included her in, her gene, in, in Jesus' genealogy. But I think there's something even deeper than that. Every person, every person in Jesus' family tree is there because God wants them to be there. Rahab did not deserve a spot in Jesus' family tree. God gave it to her. David is not listed in Jesus' genealogy because he was a great king. He's also a murderer, and he was also an adulterer, and that's hinted at in that verse that we read before. It talks about uh, that the, his wife had been the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Well, Uriah died because David had him killed. So David's a murderer, and he's an adulterer, and yet he's in Jesus' genealogy. Did he deserve it? No but God chose him anyway. Even Mary, even Jesus' mother Mary did not earn her place in Jesus' family tree. The angel Gabriel came to her and said, God has chosen you by his grace to bear his son. She didn't earn it. She wasn't perfect. She was sinful just like the rest of us. Yes, she was a wonderful person and she trusted in God, but it was only because the spirit of God worked in her to make her into the woman whom God wanted her to be. So even Mary is there by the grace of God. Every person in Jesus' family is in there by the grace of God. The kings and the prostitutes, the Jews and the foreigners, the women and the men, the famous and the obscure, the nurses and even the members of Congress who are in Jesus' family are there by the grace of God. The nurse may be at the top of the mountain and the prostitute may be at the bottom of the deepest sea and yet neither of them can touch the stars. If God does not come down to us, we are all lost. Because whether we're at the top of the mountain or the bottom of the sea, we have no hope of touching the stars apart from the grace of God. None of us, not, not a single one of us, is so good that we don't need the grace of God. And not a single one of us is so bad that we are beyond his reach. And that's the marvel. That's the, excuse me, that's the glory of the grace of God. God's grace is able to reach the person who is the furthest from God. And the person who seems to be the closest of God still needs the grace of God because none of us is good enough to measure up to his standards. One of the best preachers that I've ever heard uh, passed away yesterday. I noticed it on Facebook last night. This man, if you were to, to look at a list of the greatest preachers uh, in the 20th century, this man would almost certainly appear 
on pretty much every list. His name was, was Haddon Robinson, and he literally wrote the book on preaching that we used when I was in seminary, and I had the opportunity to hear him speak, and it was just incredible to hear this man speak. And a friend of mine posted a, a quote from Haddon Robinson on Facebook last night, and I said, I've just got to share this with you this morning because it fits so well with what we're talking about. He says, I wonder if I've ever done anything out of a pure motive. How in the world could I ever hope to have a relationship with a righteous God? I find myself thinking that I can't. So I live with grace. If you knew me like God knew me, you probably wouldn't like me. But the marvel of the Bible is that God is gracious. If we knew each other the way that God knows each other, we probably wouldn't like each other. But God is a gracious God. And he doesn't look at us and say, oh, they're so beautiful, I've got to have some of them, or she's done such a great job that I'm going to bring her to, to be with me forever, or he's done so many good deeds that he's definitely getting into heaven. No, that's not what God does. He looks at us and he says, we've all fallen short. We've all sinned. We're all broken. We are all in effect no significantly better than Rahab. We might be the nurse, but the distance between the, the prostitute and the nurse is infinitesimally small compared to the distance between us and God. And God says, I'm going to come down so that you can be with me. Unless you're as surprised that God chose you as that he chose Rahab, you don't really know God at all. And you certainly don't understand and appreciate his grace. Rahab was not on Gallup's list, but she was on Jesus' list. Not because of who she was, but because of who God is. God didn't include Rahab on his list in spite of her profession. He included her on his list because of her profession, so that he could remind me and so that he could remind you, so that he could remind us that he is a God of grace and that no matter who we are, we need his grace just as much as Rahab did. And that no matter what we've done, we could never do anything that would put us beyond the reach of his grace. Whether we're at the top of Gallup's list or whether we're at the bottom of Gallup's list. We all need the grace of God, and he's provided that for us when he sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross and to rise again. And that's why we celebrate communion. Communion is a reminder that we who are followers of Christ are part of God's family, not because of who we are, not because of what we've done, but because of who Jesus is and because of what he's done when he died on the cross for us. The Apostle Paul, who was one of the leaders in the early Christian church, wrote about communion in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and he said, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What Paul is saying, what Paul is quoting Jesus here, what Jesus is saying is that when we eat this bread and when we drink this wine or grape juice, we're proclaiming Jesus' death. We're proclaiming to ourselves and to one another and to the people around us that I don't measure up. I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I'm fallen. I don't match up to God's standards. And yet I'm also proclaiming the grace of God. I'm proclaiming that he chose me, that he chose you, not because of what we've done, but because he's a God of grace and a God of love and a God of forgiveness. So we're reminding ourselves of this, and this is why we do this on a monthly basis, because we need that reminder over and over and over again, because sometimes we get an inflated sense of who we are. We think that now we're not just the nurse, we're better than the nurse there. And this is a reminder that humbles us and says, you know what? No, we're not. We're not good enough, but God is. And then there are other times when we think, man, I'm below Rahab. I couldn't even measure up to her. I'm never going to be good enough. And God, how could God possibly love me and choose me to be part of his family? And communion is a reminder that none of us are beyond the reach of God's grace and God's love and God's forgiveness. And so whether this is your first time here at Renaissance or you've been here, you know, since, since the beginning, since the church was founded, I hope that if you're ready to proclaim that Jesus died on the cross for you, that you are a recipient of God's grace. If you're ready to proclaim that, I hope that you'll join us in celebrating communion. If you're not ready, if you're saying, yeah, this was interesting and I like some of the things that you said, but I'm not sure I agree with all that. I'm not sure that I believe all that. That's okay. We're glad that you're here this morning. Just take a few minutes and, and, and use the time to reflect and to pray and to think about the things that we've talked about and pray and ask God to reveal himself to you because that's a prayer that I know God wants to answer. When we ask him to reveal himself to us, he will do that because he's promised to do that. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for the privilege that we have of celebrating communion this morning as a proclamation, as a celebration, as a reminder of your incredible grace for us. And I thank you that no matter how much we have done wrong, we're not out of the reach of your grace. And no matter how good we think we are, we still need your grace. And I thank you that you offer it freely to us. And I pray that as we celebrate communion this morning, it would be a great reminder of the incredible love and grace and forgiveness that you have for us. We pray in Jesus' name.